Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CDUSA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. The North Woods of Wisconsin holds a special place in my heart. It's where my grandmother raised her family. It's also a place where I spent my entire childhood summers at the family cabin on a small lake where I learned to fish. So this past summer, on my first guided trip, Justin and I made our way to the musky capital of the world, Hayward, Wisconsin, to fish with Hayward Fly Fishing Company. Welcome to the February Room, Stu Neville, the owner of this legendary fly shop and actually new owner, right? New owner indeed. Uh, thank yes. you for having me, Lauren. It's nice to be on on the podcast. I've enjoyed some episodes, and um, yeah, this will be fun. Looking forward to talking with you. Well, like I said, Wisconsin. I can talk about Wisconsin all the time. Like people will be like, "Oh, you are you born and raised in Wisconsin?" I'm like, "No, no, Colorado Springs." But I have this family cabin in Wisconsin, and what I always have to laugh is when you head to 
Spooner, from Spooner to Hayward, you'd always have to cross this bridge and it'd go, you go under and it said, Spooner sucks. And then when you head back, it was like, Hayward blows. But then this year when I was going up there to go fishing um, with Ben, one of your um, employees, who's amazing, I didn't see, I, I think I, I didn't, I think I saw Hayward blows, but Spooner doesn't <laughs> suck anymore. I didn't see Spooner well, sucks. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the update on that and I'll offer one correction if I may, because. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Please do. <laughs> it, Please correct me. It, 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 it always goes, Spooner blows, Hayward sucks. Ah, oh, dang it. Not the other way around. And, and as you're driving south on 63 towards Spooner, you read on the, on the train bridge, Spooner blows, and then you're headed back toward Hayward. Hayward sucks. I mean, so I feel like blows every, is a bigger blow to the ego than sucks. I would agree. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I didn't go to high school in Hayward, so I don't have firsthand knowledge of how or when this happens. But every graduating class of the two high schools goes out and spray paints this train bridge that's about halfway between the two towns. Um, <laughs> and then whatever authority, if it's the the county or the, the railroad or whoever, highway department, I don't know, uh, they have to come out and, you know, repaint it and whatever, you know, paint it black again, <laughs> can't have it, you know, can't have that graffiti out there, all those sensitive minds and, and young eyes seeing. You can't the, scare the, the tourist. Though, well, right. Although I think half the tourists or more, uh, not unlike yourself, think of that as part of the charm. I don't know. <laughs> I find it so charming. I, I mean, I always giggle because we would, uh, you know, the summertime, part of our things to do is go to the uh, Freshwater Museum in Hayward because, you know, you got to you got to make the rounds, even though you've done it every year. And so um, anyways, I just I, Hayward and Spooner, even though there's obviously a r rivalry, it's the most the, the community up there is amazing. Like everyone likes to, you know, Missoula seems to be kind of like, oh, no more people. And maybe Hayward and Spooner kind of wanted, but they're, they're, you guys are always inviting to like tourism. Like, oh, Super come cool. here. Come on and have a seat right over here, Jerry. <laughs> come on, get over here, Jerry. You want a beer? Like, oh, you know, yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah, there's, there's plenty of that. And I think like any tourist-based town, you know, where the economy is, uh, is largely made up of tourism, you, you get people in both camps who are kind of uh, pro and anti-tourist and, you know, some people just want to be left alone and others are, you know, you know, maybe over welcoming and, and, you know, the town feels a little bit overrun sometimes, but, um, I don't know, for the most part, you got, you got really good folks up here and, um, it's an amazing area, uh, just to, to circle back to <laughs> one more update on the, on the bridge. Yes. Uh, so this year's Hayward class, uh, went out and, and spray painted the the classic uh, Spooner blows on on the railroad bridge, and that was all good. You know, they did a great job. Yeah, um, took their and, time. Yeah, really nailed it. Um, and I'm sure there were a lot of high fives all around. And then on the <laughs> other side of the bridge, uh, where ordinarily it would say Hayward sucks, well, there's there's a an even smaller town, a tiny little town north of Hayward called Drummond, and I don't know anybody who has any strong feelings about Drummond one way or another, <laughs> positive or negative. Apparently the youth of Spooner this year decided they were gonna come after Drummond. And so now on that side of the bridge, for no apparent reason, it says Drummond sucks ass. <laughs> and I gotta think that like, 
the the good people and children of Drummond are seeing that and they're like, what the hell did we do? Like, what, what is going on here? But we need to say something about Hayward, right? I, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. there needs to be another sign. That's I mean, you can't mess up with tradition. Come on, kids. I, I, I agree. But at the same time, it gave me a great laugh just picturing, <laughs> you know, all the people of Drummond seeing that and either being psyched up that they're finally getting some recognition or, <laughs> or like totally confused, you know, what did we do wrong to deserve this? And also the fact that they didn't just do, they had to add the ass to it, which makes it right, even right. more classic. Yeah. They're like, we're going to say sucks. It's going to be sucks ass. Yeah. I think but maybe they, they felt outdone by the Spooner blows for so many years uh, being more insulting. They had to really juice it. That's what I love about small towns. They really, keep up with like some fun fun traditions and in my high school it was like too big no one was going to write anything bad because no one would care it's the city's too big so when you have a small town like that that's why i love and i mean hayward is so beautiful and special because i mean i think everyone thinks about wisconsin you know the great lake you know the thousands of lakes but what makes hayward really special is we have the namakagan river and um, I would love to hear a fishing story from you, Stu, about um, about your home waters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, the, the Namakagan, you're right, is really special. And I know you can you can talk to any fly fisherman, shop owner, guide, whatever uh, about their home water. And I can just about guarantee you the word special is going to make it into their description of it. Um, which I think is amazing. It, it's just, it's great that people can feel such strong attachment to a resource like that, no matter which resource it is. Um, but the Namakagan is a part of the National Scenic Riverway system. Uh, it's part of the St. Croix National Scenic Riverway. And um, so the there's very little development on it. It's, it's the river is a hundred miles long. Um, and it's really unique in that it's got a number of very different and exceptional fisheries. Um, uh, the the northern third is a, a great trout fishery. The middle third is, you know, becomes warm water. It's really good smallmouth and, and pike fishing. And then uh, all the way down, um, sort of the, the lower third of the river is great smallmouth and pike and walleye and muskie and all kinds of all kinds of stuff going on down there. So you've got this trout fishery, this bass fishery, and then this musky fishery all in the same river um, with very little development anywhere. It's really, it's really a cool river. Well, and when I went with Ben, um, which Ben is just the most amazing guide. I, I mean, the most amazing guide I've ever had. He's the best one I've ever had. He's the only guide I've ever had. Wow. Because wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? I've, well, I have Justin. Like, why would I pay someone to go fishing when Justin, I just make Justin take me everywhere. And so yeah. it yes. was such Crash a special. Get him on the oars. It was so, such a special treat. I loved Ben's enthusiasm. The first time we were, so we were going down the river and, it was really quiet, actually. The very beginning, I was like, "Gosh, maybe, maybe we're I'm not that we're not that good, Justin, at smallmouth um, fishing." Mm. And there was this one time where Justin set the hook, and um, and Justin lost it. But the, the the smallmouth came out like out of the water, grabbed it, like it was just a huge splash. Splash. I mean, the Namakagan was so quiet, but then there was just this whole chaos happening right in front of us, and I'm, I'm and Justin lost it. 
But Ben like got up and was like, "Wow, yeah!" And I was like, "Yay!" Like he just lost a fish, and uh, Ben's enthusiasm and also his knowledge. I think he's a bi. Isn't he going into like biology or something of the Namaka? Um, yeah, I, I I could talk. We could do a whole episode about Ben Cooper. He is really an amazing person and a good friend. Um, yeah. Ben is Ben is currently. Um, in a PhD program um, for plant biology, he yes. got his he got his master's several years ago, um, and now he just reentered uh, reentered the world of academia. Um, so he's yeah he's a biologist, um, but also just one of the more joyful, enthusiastic, but also kind of you know uh, thoughtful and introspective yes. people that that you could care to spend time in a boat with. He's He's really, <laughs> he is a, he's a good dude and a good guide. And the, the other experience that I had as a guy with being with a guide is that he did everything for me. I was like, okay, I guess I got to change a fly. He's like, give it to me. And I was like, you are going to, you, do you want me to do it? Like, no, 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 no. Like, and he's like, no, no, I've got this. So it was such an amazing experience. Like there is, you know, when I was thinking like, oh, do we go with a guide and, um, I was like, no, let's just do it. Like, how crazy is it? The first time I go fishing with a guide is in Hayward, Wisconsin, where I just love it. You know, that, that area just means so much to me. And mm-hmm. when you do have a guide, it is, it takes a whole load off your shoulders in terms of like someone's there putting the fly on someone's telling you where to cast. And obviously Ben knows those waters so well, he was able to give us some really good directions in the beginning. I think Justin and I were like stripping, stripping. And he's like, you guys have got to slow down. And I was and in the nicest way. He didn't say it like that. In my mind, I'm like, come on, Lauren, slow down. But um, it's interesting how small mouth, you don't have to be fast about it. And that's what I love about the Namakagan is that everything's really quiet in the way that you need to present for smallmouth isn't loud. It's like you got to be patient and just sit there and let make sure you're stripping slowly and making those popping noises with your poppers. And um, yeah, and smallmouth, it's now my new obsessed obsessed fish. I love smallmouth fishing. Yeah. I, well, so I've enjoyed listening to some episodes of the podcast already. And uh, one of my, I mean, I've enjoyed listening to some stories that people have told, but there have been some episodes where you've sort of like, you know, thrown in a, a little anecdote or story about your time fishing with us in Hayward and hearing the energy in your voice really has brought a smile to my face. It's, oh, it, it's, cool. it. it's, 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 it's flattering to know that, uh, that, you know, we do, we do a good thing here and, and that you really enjoyed yourself. Um, but you said a lot about smallmouth and just how joyful they are they're such a fun fish and i think people assume a lot about these fish that you know just because you know they're a they're a warm water predator it's like well you can take whatever and slap it down and rip it through the water and you know they just want to eat big stuff that's moving fast and making a ton of noise um and there are days where that's true for sure um but that you know then that same that same person who loves to go out and throw, you know, huge streamer and, you know, you know, rip it through the water. They'll go out and they'll have a, they'll have a skunk day or a really bad day and they get off the water and, oh, it just wasn't happening out there today. They weren't biting. Well, no, they were. 
you just didn't show them the right food the way they wanted it. it it's they do have some nuance to their game a little bit like that, you know. Um, and I, I just don't think people give them that credit. Well, and also they they fight so hard. I didn't even think because I mean I've caught I've caught some uh, largemouth bass on the lake up there, and um, and I mean they they fight, but the smallmouth I that that shook me. I like the first time I caught one, I was like, wait, what the heck is, did I catch a tarpon, Justin? I think there's a tarpon on this. Like this is not a smallmouth, and yeah. he's like, and I and I've never had a fight of fish like that. Like with trout, I always kind of strip. And that one, I was just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. I was like walking to the front of the boat, like passing Ben. I was like, move over, Ben. I'm going to come back here. He's like, where are you going? I was like, well, I'm just trying to bring this fish to the boat. I don't know what the heck. It's like fighting so hard. And yeah. that's what surprises me with smallmouth is that they're crazy fighting fish. Like, do you remember your first time catching a smallmouth? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they're they're brawlers. Um I think a lot of people like, you know, a lot of people will tell your same story that you just did that. First of all, I want to make it clear that largemouth and smallmouth, when it comes to fighting on the rod, are in totally different classes, totally different classes. Smallmouth have have several levels above, you know, several different gears above what what a largemouth will give you. I, I think largemouth are really cool and I love those fish, but if you're looking for like a bend your eight weight to the cork type fish. Yes. Smallmouth. Um, I, I guess to my smallmouth origins, uh, I was fortunate to grow up fishing a lake around Hayward. I did not grow up in Hayward, but uh, my family, you know, not unlike yours, has, has been visiting Hayward since I was born. Uh, when I was born, my family got a spot just east of town. And it's on a fantastic smallmouth lake. So, um, I didn't start out fly fishing. I, you know, I was a spin fisherman from the time I could hold a rod, but um, started fly fishing, uh, you know, kind of middle of high school, uh, kind of started working it into my, my fishing program. And, um, oh my gosh, the, the first time I hooked a smallmouth on a fly rod uh, in Round Lake, I, I, it just totally blew my mind. Um, because it's, you know, I was so used to, you know, throwing a crankbait or a, you know, a spinnerbait or whatever, and just ripping it through the water. And I, I caught this fish um, on like a size 12 parachute Adams, uh, just farting around trying to catch <laughs> fish. Um, and th- there just so happened to be um, this flying ant hatch that that had gone on um, the day before. And so there were there were these flying ants just sitting, you know, wriggling around on the surface and it was glassy calm. And I just, Round Lake is crystal clear. And I watched this huge fish come up and, and sip, you know, these flying ants that these golden flying ants that were sitting on, on the surface. And, you know, I thought, oh, okay, here we go. Um, and it, it came up and ate my fly. <sighs> just to to watch all that, you know, you watch this fish swim up from down, you know, eight, 10 feet or whatever, and come up and just kiss this fly off the surface when you're so used to watching them eat, you know, a a wacky worm or a, or a, or whatever. 
and this this fish this idea of the fish that you have in your mind just totally changes at that moment a lot of people ask me what my favorite fish is and you know we guide smallmouth and muskie and depending on the day my answer might change but if you really twist my arm i I would have to say smallmouth. They're just so cool. Definitely one of my all-time favorite fish. But Hayward is also known as the musky capital of the world. I think they have five world musky fit records, right? Is that correct? You know, it's something like that. And the, the lore goes all the way back to, you know, the 40s when people were catching these just obscene monsters out of some of these lake and river systems um, and we could launch into um, what created the conditions for those fish to exist um, but do you think they I still exist whew, uh, are there are there fish north of 60 inches out there in Hayward is that what you're asking yeah You know, part of fishing and especially musky fishing is uh, the belief that something could happen. So, because <laughs> uh, for so long you're out there and nothing is happening. Um, so I, I like to, in the spirit of musky fishing, believe that yes, there is a fish that tops out over 60 inches in the Hayward area. You, you see people catching you know, fish in the mid high fifties in some of these like huge lake systems, you know, the, the Bay of Green Bay has some giant fish in it. Um, you know, there are some big lakes in, you know, central and Northern Minnesota that have some true giants in them. And, and, you know, Hayward, Hayward certainly had, had its day where it's produced fish like that too. And, you know, there are mid fifties fish that come out of the Hayward area every year, 60 inches. I believe it. I would love to see it. I, I don't know if that fish gets caught, you know, the way people are using electronics now and all these different yeah. fish finding technologies. I, I think if it's out there, someone's going to find it. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the water out here, but um, gosh, I, I just, I hope that when they do catch it, they treat it right and, and release it. Um, it'd be a shame to see a fish like that go just in the name of records and glory. Well, and, kind of like back to your point, like back in the day, it was very normal in the fifties to take your fish and then, you know, pull it out of the water and get it taxidermy, which my grandfather has in my uncle's garage in Wisconsin has like my grandfather's walleye, you know, at the, you know, back in the fifties, it's like his first mm -hmm. walleye and it looks the it's the grossest taxidermy, but we have to oh. keep it. It's grandpa's fish. And it's like the yeah. eyeballs are, like dried up and the fins, like the, I don't know what kind of plaster they use, but it's, it, it basically looks like a decomposed fish on the wall yeah. it's from the 1940s. And I always wonder um, if that had some kind of bad repercussions when people kept pulling the greatest big fish out, you know, cause that's just what you did back then. You just were like, Oh, I'm going to take this home and take a oh, picture. And, and for muskies in Hayward, I mean, you know, you kind of mentioned the process. Well, you catch it and you pull it out of the water and you take it, you know, taxidermy or whatever. This was all like back in the forties when a lot of these records were being caught. Um, they, 
Well, there was no digital camera. So you weren't going to like whip out your phone and snap a quick one and get the fish back in the water or whatever. <laughs> uh, so the, the two sort of notorious characters uh, in the, the musky record chase uh, back in that day were uh, Louis Spray and Cal Johnson. Um, Cal Johnson's record holds. Uh, Louis Spray's fish, by a lot of accounts, was clearly bigger, but his fish did not count in the record because he landed it by shooting it in the head. And that's, what? that's yes. Yep. That's how a lot of people were landing fish back in the day. They'd pull them up alongside the boat or up on shore, whatever. And they'd pull out a pistol and shoot that thing to, to pacify it, I guess. Um, and then oh you gosh. would, yep, you would take that fish and bring it into the bar that night and you know if you don't bring your fish in you don't have a picture of it it's you know you come, to, you come to the bar and oh how'd you do out there today oh we caught five and biggest one was 58. yeah okay whatever show me well if yeah. you shot that fish and you brought it to the bar you can show that guy what you caught that day um and is that why Friday fish fry is a thing? Because it started back in the 40s because every all the guys just went out to pistols and were like, Friday fish fry. You know, God bless a Friday fish fry. I love it, but um I I, I couldn't stay I couldn't speak to its origins. Um but there were up until relatively recently, you know, um there were a lot of muskies dying uh in the name of just going up on somebody's wall or, um, you know, proof of somebody's fishing prowess. So I think the digital camera has, uh, has saved a lot of fish lives in recent years. Pros and cons to the future. I mean, I think we sometimes think about the good old days, but I think there was a lot of things that happened during the good old days that, um, didn't probably transcend really well to like the fisheries that is going, um, on the Namakagan. Um, I know we were talking mm -hmm. about muskies. I'm just, I remember Ben was when we were out because I've never actually caught a, uh, a muskie on the fly. And I remember Ben was giving us some information about like the skills and the, um, the time and the weather and the flies and um, how it's just really, even if you get a chance, it, like bringing one to the rope to the boat is very rare. Um, can you talk about your strategy when it comes to fly fishing for muskie on the Namakagan? Yeah. Um, well, I, I should say for starters, we, we do fish the Namakagan, but we fish a, a handful of other rivers in the area too. There are, um, we have a lot of options. We're, we're fortunate to have a lot of really good water around here. But Namakagan is uh, the, the, the best one to say, cause it's Namakagan. Like I love the name it, Namakagan. It, it's got a hell of a name. It's um, the best name, Namakagan. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel like all the, all the river systems that we fish up here have, have cool names uh, sort of in different ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've got like Clark, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you can come up with a name like Namakagan. Well, so, so many of our river systems up here are named either, they're either given uh, native Ojibwa names or, um, or they're given like uh, French sort of voyageur uh, fur trapper type names. Yeah. Um, the the Namakagan and the Chippewa um, are, are are given native names, uh, and then you have the the Saint Croix and the Flambeau uh, with a little more French spin on them. Um, so, but 
at any rate, they're all pretty fun to say and even more fun to fish. They're yes, they're really really cool rivers. Uh, but anyway, you had asked about um, about musky fishing and kind of some tactics and approach. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for my next trip. For my next trip. Oh my gosh, muskies. Muskies are one of the ultimate head shaking fish. Where I mean, and I don't mean that as in like you hook them and they shake their head. They do, but like you, you shake can your just, head. You can just hold your head in your hands and and shake your head about the things that you see them do, their behaviors, the things you see them commit to or not commit to, the places they choose to live. It, they can be extremely difficult fish to pattern um, and that can drive you crazy as a guide <laughs> uh, or, or an angler, frankly, because um, there are a lot of people out there in the world who are not guides who are still dedicating major hours out of their life to chase these crazy things. Um, and isn't and isn't like the peak time to do it is like in the fall, pretty much? Yeah. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of different schools of thought about that. Um, I'll say the way we approach it, um, we fish muskie based largely on water temperature. And I think a lot of people aren't aware that, you know, muskie are considered a warm water fish. Like you group them into that category, um, you know, trout being cold water fish and bass being warm water fish. Muskie get thrown into that warm water category, but um, they are a fish that really needs a lot of dissolved oxygen in the water, you know, for, for as big and strong and scary and yeah. tough as they are. Um, you know, they're, they're a very high performance critter. Um, they, they need, they demand a lot of dissolved oxygen in the water. And as trout anglers know, um, you have to be sensitive to water temperature that way. Cause as it gets hotter, you, you lose a lot of that dissolved oxygen. So all that to say, we don't fish musky when the water gets above 75 degrees. There's no official decree from the DNR in Wisconsin or, or, um, or any like official body about, you know, when it gets to a certain temperature, you got to stop fishing them. There's no hoot owl really for muskie. Um, and I, I, I wish that there was, I think a lot of fish would, um, would be saved. And, and frankly, there are so many warm water opportunities up here for anglers that you don't have to fish muskies when the water's 82 degrees or whatever. Um, but anyway, that, that, that self-imposed limitation rules out a lot of the summertime for us chasing muskies. Um, so we focus a lot of our time early in the summer um, and then kind of right around like that second week of September through the fall as cold as you can stand it. Those are kind of our, our, our prime musky seasons where we really dedicate a lot of our energy to chasing them. And, you know, you get the occasional cold snap in the summer and when that happens, the fish can switch on and, you know, you can, you can get after them then for sure and have a lot of success. But, um, yeah, we, we do really well, uh, early in the summer before the water gets too hot. And then in the fall when they're trying to put the feed bag on to load up for winter and, um, all of a sudden your fly starts to look pretty good to them. You know, I know a lot of guides this past summer because our water temperatures this past summer were extremely warm. And there was a lot of guides who just decided to cancel all of their bookings just because they're like, there's no way any of these fish were going to be able to survive being caught and then being put into the temperature at one point was like 70 degrees at 10 a.m. 
Um, and there was no hoot owl restrictions. Like everyone could still go fishing, but a lot of guides, um, and a lot of other anglers, independent anglers decided not to go fishing. And I think that's, what's really great about the community is sometimes is that you realize what great resource you have and how you want to protect that resource for, you know, you can wait three months, you can wait two months, you know, for the fall. And, um, I think that's just so important because it, if we start taking advantage of the things that we love, they'll be taken away for future generations, which is why the Hayward fly shop has been, I mean, it's been around for a long time, hasn't it? How many years? Yeah. Uh, the, the shop opened its doors in 05. Yeah. And you just bought it a year ago. Yeah. Well, not even. Um, so I, I guided for the shop, um, for eight seasons. Uh, and then I, I just, bought the business this past spring. So what would have been April, 2021? Um, yeah, it's, it's, how does that feel like switching from guy to owner? You never really know how it's going to go something like this, you know, big move like this. You don't know how it's going to affect you and, and your life. You can, you can take some pretty educated guesses, but, um, you know, I didn't know exactly how I was going to take to it, but I love it. I, you know, I've, I went from, you know, my guide days essentially got cut in half from previous years to, to then this past season. Um, but, you know, I guided enough to sort of keep my sanity and, and stay in touch with what's happening on the water. And I, I fortunately, I've got other great guides in the shop who uh, are out every day and, and, you know, giving me good intel as to what's happening out there and what they're seeing. But um, I actually have found that shop life suits me fairly well um i need to get on the water i need to get on the water but um you know i i, I do find joy in helping people who come into the shop especially in a town like hayward where you know not everybody you get all kinds right you get people who uh, who've been fly fishing for longer than i've been alive and you know i don't pretend to be the the ultimate source of knowledge. I'm still in here trying to learn every day um, from people like that who walk into the shop. Uh, but then also, you know, beginners who who just are, you know, saw a buddy do it or have read about it or heard about it. And, um, you know, oh, you guys got fly fishing around here, huh? And well, you got to, you know, you got to you got to give that person the time of day. You know, it's um, I'm, I'm happy to talk with them about all the, the cool opportunities in the fly fishing world, especially you know, locally as it relates to this shop. Um, I just think fly shops need to be that resource. And it, if for every beginner that walks in, you know, the person behind the counter in the shop rolls their eyes, well, that's just not, I, I feel like fly fishing kind of has that reputation a little bit too. Um, like it, it can seem inaccessible to some people and that's a problem. That's not good. I mean, we, we don't we don't necessarily need everybody everybody out there because i mean we all right. know how that works especially you guys out west have seen uh, some kind of crazy increase in traffic on the rivers in the last couple of years especially with the pandemic but um frankly i, I just think as a sport um you know there should be some sense of uh, of welcome um uh, if if you do have genuine interest in this thing um and and that starts with fly shops and guides, frankly. So, yeah, I totally agree. The fly, I mean, and I, 
I think that's what when I experienced coming into the Hayward Fly Shop because it's like my first guided trip and um, you you are I think you are right that there's just some fly shops that tend to be um, I've walked into a few and I'm always like oh like this is so nerve wracking like they're probably wondering why I'm doing here and I just need some three X you know some some tippet. Well, and, and if, if we really want to get into an issue, you you walking into a fly shop as a woman, you you even get a, a different sort of eye cast at you, which is a serious yeah. that, that's a serious problem. Oh yeah, I mean, there's been handfuls of time that ask me um, that people have asked me if I know what I'm doing, and that you know because I'm like, oh, I need some you know get my inventory up. I needed three X, and then I think I dropped I bought a nymph or something because i was like oh i'm gonna go fishing so i might as well grab a couple of nymphs yeah if i really want to catch something and i've had a couple of times where people question me if i know what i'm doing with that with this and i'm like well i'm not buying them together you know like i feel i have to explain what why i have two different items as opposed to i feel sometimes if justin went in he would never be questioned buying two things that don't work together you know right so it's always like, and, and, and maybe, and maybe it's more me being like, why are you saying that to me? Like, but <laughs> yeah. well, I, I think, you know, if, if Justin goes into a shop and buys two completely unrelated things as a man, he's probably got a plan. But if, yeah. a, if a woman walks into a shop and buys two unrelated things, she doesn't know what she's doing. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I struggle with that. I, I think, you know, it goes back to fly fishing, being a welcoming environment it you know we we all need to work on that well and i just think in general i think when going to hayward fly shop everyone like i was just like who's gonna be our guide because everyone like when we walked into the shop and everyone was smiling ben was there was it was it brian i can't remember the guy that was behind the desk oh brandon brandon see i was close brian brandon yeah (laughs) he was smiling and the shop is so beautiful it's like wood and um then we like go outside i'm like oh what 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 boat are we gonna be on and you guys had all those beautiful boulder boats Mm. and that was even really nice because also sometimes when you go on a guided trip i mean we have a lot of people up here in montana and i'll be like driving i'm like oh gosh that guy's going to take that person on that boat. I was like, I got luxury up here. I got this nice boulder boat and they're so comfortable and everyone was smiling. Um, and it is nerve wracking when you first go fishing with someone. Cause I'm so used to Justin just watching me fish. And if he corrects me, I'm like, who cares? And I was like, here's going to be the stranger. That's going to be right behind me. Cause of course I'm on the boat, the boat. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. And yeah I'm, you're up on the boat. <laughs> I'm going to be in the very, I'm going to be at the, I'm going to catch all the fish. Um, yep. but it was very warming and never judgy. Like I missed a couple of cat, you know, didn't get my line tight enough. And, mm-hmm. um, but I never felt Ben made me feel right at home as much as equal as Justin, which I'm not at all, but it just was a very comfortable. It was just a really wonderful, wonderful day on the river. It's like one of my most memorable memories I will always have. I get to share it on the podcast all the time. Everyone's like, oh. I'm like, so I went on a guided trip. <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, you're a guide. Well, let me tell you my, about my trip. <laughs> <laughs> what well, a basic belief of mine is if someone is going to pay you to take them out on a guided trip, uh, you should control what you can control because so much of fishing is out of your control. You know, you can make adjustments when you're on the water and things like that. But, uh, but, 
if you can show up with a clean boat and usable gear and <laughs> a, a halfway decent attitude uh, as a guide, you you got to do that. And you know uh, that's something that that all the guys here strive for. We we try to keep it positive and and make it fun for people, uh, regardless of what the fishing day is going to hold for us. Well, and you guys hit all the marks on that. Another memory that pops to mind. As we were on the Namakagan, I came up with a really good idea because we kept seeing, is it the red horse? Red horse? This, like those yeah, stars? There, there are five different subspecies of red horse sucker in the Namakagan. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And they're huge. Like, I remember I was mm-hmm. asking Ben, I was like, Ben, we can we catch one of these? And he goes, we've tried, you know, like, I was like, have you ever caught one of these red horses? And I came up with the most brilliant fly. If someone can come up with a fly, I came up with the name of the fly. It'd be called Ride 'em Cowboy. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? I think you need to come up with a with a fly because um, Ben was saying that you guys were trying to figure out a fly that could possibly catch one of those suckers because they're huge. You're just like yeah. down there. You're like, I want to catch one of those things. I want to catch one of those you, suckers. You can catch them on a fly. Um, you can have you done it uh yeah technically yeah um (laughs) there the the best way to catch a red horse sucker is with a gob of worms um you know and and just get it on a on a heavy weight and get it down there and eventually they're going to find it um but as far as uh catching them on a fly rod is concerned um you know you can snag one like maybe if you just Well, yeah, let's talk about like a legal catch, you know? Um, So it's actually funny. Uh, In in the fall, we'll be stripping big musky streamers for, you know, for for musky. And and we will occasionally catch a red horse in the mouth, in in their weird little sucker mouth with, you know, a big four-aught hook and a, you know, 10-inch fly or whatever. So it's, it's like... You know, you didn't snag that fish. It it tried to maybe not eat it, but it made some aggressive move on the fly and and got hooked. And hey, you landed a red horse. Um, I've run that by our fisheries biologist uh, in town here, and he says, "Yep, people catch them on rapalas in the fall too. It doesn't make any sense. They you know can't figure it out." But um, so that's one way to do it. But something more reliable uh, on a fly rod, you know, you can plunk something heavy down and, and kind of, you know, drift it right by him on the bottom. Um, one of our other guides, Eric actually caught a few like that this summer, uh, with a particularly heavy cone headed woolly bugger. Um, and it was interesting. He said they almost reacted more to like the vibration of the weight of the fly on the sand, not the, not the visual of it, not the smell, just, I mean, he's not spraying his flies with smell them or anything, but <laughs> he, he said it, it seemed like it was sort of the tumbling, you know, percussive action of the fly hitting the bottom that grabbed their attention and they came over and ate it. So um, the, the, the data collection is ongoing on the red horse fishery of the upper, you know, northern Wisconsin. Um, but yeah, we're we're poking around and, and having some fun with them every now and then. Well, especially if the musky fishing is kind of not happening, you just see all these, you know, <laughs> as you're kind of going down and you look down, like, why don't we catch one of these little guys? Like, Well, that, so that's me 
you're opening uh, you're opening my mind here just a little bit <laughs> into sort of Stu's musky philosophy. If you're if you need to catch musky to enjoy musky fishing, I've got news for you. You might not enjoy musky fishing. You know, it's everybody loves catching fish. But if if you're not in it for the hunt and the process um, and sort of just the the bigger picture, um, then they just might not be the fish for you. And that's okay. Uh, It's musky fishing is hard. Uh, You know, there's a lot of fishing out there that's difficult, but um, musky fishing will really challenge you physically and even more so mentally. Uh, you know, if, if you're, you know, you're a couple hours into your musky trip and you're looking down and all of a sudden those red horses are starting to look pretty tempting, <laughs> um, you know, it, you, you can't, you can't give in that easy or they're going to, you know, the musky are going to beat you. Um, you, you gotta, you gotta commit to it and put the time in and red horse are cool, but the, the, the investment, they're in no time, musky. The, the investment in time spent fishing does eventually pay off. Is, is, do you have to like prepare your clients as they come in for musky fishing? Like, Hey, we're going to put this straight. Like we have the opportunity to catch fish or to catch a musky, or do you think they're already kind of well aware of their chances of, I think musky, musky have a reputation, right. As being notoriously difficult to catch. And I think most people come into a guide day with us having a sense of that, um, but there are definitely, I mean, as with all, uh, I'm sure any guide out there who, who hears this can, can relate to it in some way. Uh, there are people who expect it to be truly transactional. I pay the money, I catch the fish. And yeah. that's just not how it works. I can't. <laughs> uh, 99% of the people who, who get in a boat with us understand that. Um, but, you know, so all that to say, most people do have a sense of how challenging it is and uh, know that we are going to do our best to give you opportunity um, to, to find and catch a muskie. It, people ask us all the time, well, how many fish, you know, how many muskies do you catch in a day? Or, you know, what's an average day? <laughs> that, that, like that, that's a super common question. What's an average day of muskie fishing? And, oh my gosh, it, it's the the data points are so far apart. You know, you can go days and not even see one fishing it hard, fishing it well, not even see them. Or you can, you know, you can move and land six fish in an hour or something. These bite windows open up sometimes where the fish just go crazy. But the, the answer that I give people when they ask that question about sort of a normal or average day is we hope to get a couple of chances today. And a chance can look like any number of things. It can be, Mm. A, a huge blow up as soon as your fly hits the water that you never connect on. It can be a follow all the way up to the boat. You go into a figure eight boat side and that fish is on it. And then just for whatever reason disappears, never to be seen again. Um, it can be a flash under your fly. It can be a fish actually eating it, but not connecting. You know, it, it, it can look like a lot of, it can look like a boated fish. It can look like a 50 inch fish in the net. So um, we just, we try to give people, opportunity to succeed and so much of it after that is up to the fish and up to the angler 
Yeah. Uh, already gives me anxiety right now. I could just see my <laughs> chance. Just uh-huh. right there, that one chance. We're like, don't screw this up. Put the fly exactly there. I can just see, I can hear Justin yelling at me. Like, don't strip. No, don't stop. 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 Slow down. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that, that'll help. <laughs> oh, I can already feel it. I'm just already like sweating underneath, underneath my armpits. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mus- muskies have a strange power that way. They, they yeah. get in people's heads. They have this this sort of magical mythical ability where they just kind of stare into your eyeball and 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 i've seen a lot of really good anglers turn to mush just at the thought of musky you know it's 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 a funny thing they do kind of have a glare at you don't they it always even when you see somebody's picture with a musky you're always like oh it's looking at you not very happy they are beautiful but they are not kind looking critters they look ill-intended which I really like. <laughs> They're like the opposite of what a rainbow looks like. I mean, a rainbow's like, oh, it's beautiful. And it looks like it's taking a little smile with you in this picture. Um, but yeah, no muskie. I, I hope I get the opportunity because um, as I've heard from everyone is that it's just a, a fish of a lifetime. And sometimes you feel like you have to travel to, you know, Florida and do the big tarpon. But sometimes like the, the coolest species is just right around the corner in your own home waters, which for me is my own home waters. I like to think that Wisconsin's part of my my home waters too, because that's where I learned fish. So I'm like, oh yeah, my special place. I love it up yeah. there. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's wonderful. And I I guess you know, I do the the Florida Keys big tarpon thing uh, regularly enough to feel I can actually speak about it somewhat. I there are similarities to be drawn between musky fishing and big tarpon fishing. They are not the same, um, but there are similarities there. And I think, I think musky have earned their place on, you know, sort of the bucket list of fish. Um, Yeah. They they are really cool and they do some strange things like just stuff that you don't see a whole lot of other fish do. What's the strangest thing you've seen? that a muskie oh, has done uh i have i've had personally i've had my own oar blade grabbed by a fish a couple of times and you know so that, that would lead you to believe well god how hard how hard can they be to catch if they're eating oar blades you know but <laughs> then you know they'll they'll turn right around and you know a mile down the river you'll have a fish come in you know come in on your fly and inspect it and follow it and follow it and follow it you know you're stirring the pot in this figure eight by the boat and then it just disappears so they can be insanely reckless and aggressive uh, you know just eating oar blades with abandon or they can be really finicky um and, and kind of you know uh choosy about what they're what they're gonna eat which kind of <laughs> reminds me you said the eight the eight figure which is that's what you have to do when you're fly fishing right like an, a figure eight is that what you have to think is you, that that, that's so that's not exclusive to fly fishing necessarily it's you know musky anglers who who do any kind of casting you know people control for muskies you can drag suckers for muskies but if you're casting and retrieving a, a lure or a fly or whatever all the way back to your feet or to the boat um the the figure eight is a commonly understood necessity in musky fishing um because they will eat it right at your feet. I, 
it, it sometimes it seems like that's where they want to eat it. You know, you if you're fishing a sinking line and you're bringing your fly through and it's you know four or five feet down or whatever, and in clear water. And in fact, the the most recent muskie I caught uh, this year on a guide's day off uh, illustrated this beautifully. We were fishing in crystal clear water and probably. 30 feet out from the boat, I, you know, my fly's down five feet and 30 feet out, I can see it. I can see the fly. And I see this fish come up and make a big move on the fly. And this is an elite predator. It could eat it if it wanted to. This is not a challenge for this fish. <laughs> uh, but I just keep the fly moving, keep it moving, you know, 20 feet from the boat, fish makes another move, doesn't eat it, keep it moving, fly's still down at my feet. You know, I strip so the fly is maybe 18 to 24 inches away from the tip of the rod. And I just take the rod, shove it down in the water and start drawing these big shapes and bring the fly up near the surface of the water. And a lot of times that's what does it. You know, they they commit right then and there when they could have committed way out when the fly was down. Uh, and, you know, in theory, less yeah. work. <laughs> um, and, and you think the musky would have seen the boat or, or something, right? There Maybe? are times when they definitely do. There are times where, you know, or they sneak up on you, you know, like you, yeah. you go, you're bringing the boat, you're bringing the fly in and you get near the boat and all of a sudden this phantom just materializes out of the dark. And I, <laughs> I, have, I have seen and heard grown men and women do some strange things <laughs> when, when, when that fish just appears like that, you know, ah, whatever noise comes out of the mouth, and they will jump or shake the boat, and the fish will feel that or see that and forget it, they're gone. Um, but there are times where they are so hot and intent on eating that fly. I have had people in a figure eight hit the fish with a rod, and the fish turns around and eats the fly. They are a, they are an agent of chaos, and oh, I you. Love just, that. I love it too, but it can totally break you because <laughs> sometimes that works in your favor. More often than not, they're going to leave you broken hearted. And so you've got to sort of be prepared for that and try to appreciate the cool stuff that you're going to see out there, whether or not it results in you landing that fish. Are, are you in the Freshwater Museum book of records? Personally, yes, <laughs> it feels like everybody's in that book. Have you seen the, that those books? There's not even just like one book of like records. There's like seven books at the Freshwater Museum, which they're golden. Have you seen? Have you opened that booklet anytime in the past? Like, I've not. I've not opened the book. No, I um, I, I I can say confidently that I am not in one of the books, um, and I guess just my own personal philosophy i i don't i don't fish for records i really yes we really we really don't even measure fish you know we, we've all seen and measured enough like enough fish in our in our day to mm -hmm. be able to stay within an inch you know okay that's a mid-40s fish or that's a 32 inch fish you know whatever and if it's a 33 and a quarter or a 31 what difference does that really make yeah. Does it take away from your experience or your no. love of fishing? And and it's, you know, it's funny people get, when it comes to smallmouth, people get tied up on, on certain numbers, you know, any fish over 18 or 19 or, you know, the hallowed 20 inch fish. And we have all, all those fish in our waters, but 
I've seen a 15 inch smallmouth do some really, really cool stuff and then try to, you know, snatch the rod out of my hand fighting me. It's, you know, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this, this, you know, quote unquote trophy to, to be worth fishing for, or to, you know, to be the reason to get in the boat at the beginning of the day. Um, you know, there are a lot of big fish out there and everybody loves big fish, including me. Um, but I think, I think anglers in general place too much importance on numbers. Agreed. Agreed. See, that's why I'm the best angler. Like, even if I don't catch fish, I have a good day. But if you do have some time to, to kill, cause you're just there in Hayward, you should go there and look <laughs> at the book. I've taken so many pictures. Every time I go up there, I'm like, no, I'm gonna take a picture of this guy. And sometimes I'm like, Oh, should I share this picture? Cause I think probably 80% of those people, those photos are beyond hammered because they have like white fish, like the largest <laughs> white fish caught in ice fishing. And there'll be a guy that is, his eyes aren't even like, some of them, I think they're jokes, but you know, he's just like hammered. He's like looking down at this frozen white fish and he's just would, like. Oh, I, I would love, I would love to see it. Love to see it. Did So did he, he got the record white fish. Did he also get the record for like highest ABV? He, uh, while fishing or something like that like do they give another freshwater fishing hall of fame world record for that or i mean that museum is amazing um the kids love it i just you know it's a good place to go if the weather starts to get kind of crummy in the summertime just to kind of like walk around and um but i mean they, they have that huge um isn't it the largest musky statue or whatnot it's it's the giant musky it's you know it's a it's a very famous piece of sort of iconic Hayward imagery. Yeah, um, you have to go upstairs and then you can look at the whole town of Hayward in the mouth of a muskie. Right. You you <laughs> you enter this fish down near the base of its tail and walk all the way up through it. It's like 140 feet long or something like that. And as you're and, going, they and, have like old memorabilia, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Of those days of when people used to be shooting fish in the head. Yep. Except yep. they don't have any, they don't really showcase that at all in Hayward. They don't, they make it seem like the good old days, you know? Yeah. Oh. I, I got to think, I got to think our local chapter of Muskie's Inc. Uh, maybe had something to do with uh, a little bit of the <laughs> removal of uh, the, the role guns played in landing fish back in the day. You know, now, now we like to see fish released. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also like keeping them wet, you know, that's a new thing that I'm really trying to just keep fish underwater at all times. Yeah. Yep. And that, that can be, that can be challenging with, uh, with muskies sometimes just because of sort of their, their vicious nature. They can be, uh, yeah. they can be difficult, uh, difficult to work on when you're trying to get the hook out of them. And we use all single barbless hook flies to try to minimize the amount of handling time on those fish. But, um, you know, e even so they are, they're very strong yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and they can, they can make it a challenge to, to get the hook, you know, just immediately out of them. But, um, yeah, it's, I, I think that's really important kind of back to, back to the point about trying to take care of these fish and some of the steps we take. Uh, we, we really do try to minimize the amount of time that we have our hands on the fish. And if we're going to take a picture, it's going to be real quick. And then that thing is back, back in the drink. Yeah. It's, I think a lot of guides are starting to do that too. And I think as more of I, as the more time I have um, spent on this podcast and learning more about, gosh, I mean, even Marlin, I mean, you know, Marlin, you should never 
take our sailfish. You never should take them out of the water. Um, mm-hmm. They have like this this coat on them that protects them and their scent and everything. So when you lift them out of the water, um, it's just, I mean, I think as we keep learning about other fisheries and um, how important it is, um, I think mm-hmm. there is something good about being aware as opposed to back in the day, just being like, well, I'm going to show my buddies at the bar, which there's amazing bars at Hayward. Where's my 22? We got to land this (laughs) fish. Absolutely. Well, before we say goodbye, Stu, would love to hear one more fly fishing story from you. Sure. Uh, I guess one, one that pops to mind uh, was from my, my last guide trip of this past season. Um, uh, A November musky trip with one of my, one of my favorite clients, a guy named Steve, uh, he's from New Mexico, uh, and he, he has roots in Wisconsin. So, um, you know, he heard about us that way and, uh, comes back and he's been fishing with me for, for as long as I've been guiding. Um, and you know, it started out, it was just Steve coming and then, you know, he had such a great time and, and caught fish. And so he started bringing a buddy and then that turned into six buddies. And, you know, now it's, you know, it's the Steve group that comes in the fall. <laughs> um, which is great. They're wonderful people from, from all over the place. And, and we really have a lot of fun with them. But, um, uh, this particular day, it was just me and Steve, um, which is a beautiful thing. I, I really like fishing with him and Steve is one of those guys. And I'm sure guides out there know this type of client. Steve has very little business catching the fish that he does <laughs> he, and, and he would, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm blasting Steve here. I think he would agree with me. There are more skilled anglers out there than Steve. Now that's, I like Steve already. He's my kind of man. Oh yeah. Steve is my kind of man. Steve, <laughs> Steve is a delight. Steve is, Steve is not the most skilled angler. That guy finds a way to catch muskies like, I, I like the the number of hours fished to inches of musky landed he he's just i always know that if steve gets in the boat something's gonna happen like we're we're gonna get him steve's in the boat we're gonna catch him. <laughs> um he's got the mojo he's got yeah he's got something out there in the universe he's lived a good life he <laughs> um I, I i i couldn't tell you and i don't know if he could tell you but maybe that's not important. I don't know. I really enjoy spending time in the boat with him and he, he and I have had a lot of success together. Um, so it's just the two of us and we, we take off cold November morning. Um, but Steve's in the boat, so there's hope. Uh, and sure enough in the first hour and a half or so of fishing, Steve has moved two big fish to the boat. Neither one committed to the fly, but you know, they both came up and seemed ready to eat at both side and just disappeared um so we on this second fish we backed up and i put the anchor down and we were gonna you know maybe give her another shot after a few minutes and um while we're sitting there resting and chatting and enjoying the morning and steve's warming his hands a little bit um another boat rolls up on us around the corner which is not something that we're very used to seeing uh in november um but anyway you know another boat out there and these guys are fishing and they pass us and I wave them through and, you know, exchange the pleasantries and whatever. And it's, it's another, 
uh, a guy who owns a shop uh, a little further south in Wisconsin. He and a buddy were just out fishing. And so we chatted for a sec and they did the gentlemanly thing and, you know, put their rods away. They didn't fish the water right off the bow of our boat and just rode through. Um, but they were out in front of us the rest of the day. And uh, I, I have little issue fishing behind other boats when I'm musky fishing. Caught a lot of fish fishing behind people. Um, well, that's interesting. It, it is interesting. And <laughs> we could do a whole. Yeah, because trout fishing, you'd be like, screw you. Well, and even, even smallmouth fishing to a degree. But um, yeah. and, and there's, you know, there's some, it can impact your confidence a little bit, you know, when, when you get passed by a boat, especially if they're people who know what they're doing and, uh, you know, they're going to cover it up, but I, I've had enough yes. behind some other boats that it doesn't affect me as much as it used to. But, um, on this particular day, we had moved two big fish early. And then as soon as we got behind those guys, we didn't see anything. I mean, it was just dead. And, and, you know, sometimes, well, that's just musky fishing, but also it's like, well, the fish seemed active in the morning. So what's the deal? Are these guys just like bonking all of them on the head as they go down, you know, and, <laughs> and catching everything and whatever. So, you know, but it's fishing with Steve. So not a, not a super high pressure situation. He was having a great time and, and so was I, and it was just good to be out. But, you know, eventually kind of, you know, later in the day, something kind of kicked into my head where I was like, all right, we gotta, we gotta find Steve some some fresh water here you know it's just i made the decision not to fish behind these guys anymore and i wasn't going to like jump right in front of them and low hole them or anything but i knew that just past the takeout the water got a little slower and i'd been you know for that kind of half mile below the takeout i'd been seeing a lot of fish in there this season so i thought all right these guys are going to take out at this you know planned ramp that that we're gonna that we're gonna use Steve and I are going to put the rod away right now, and we're just going to row for a few miles, get to the takeout, and then fish that stuff, fish that fresh water down there, and see if we can find one of these fish. And so we we beat it. We just I'm rowing hard, and we go past these guys, and you know wave and, and chat a little bit, and we're just zooming. We're on our way, and we get down there, and Steve gets back up in the you know standing, and he picks up his rod, and he's fishing hard. Uh, and at the end, you know, this this float that we're doing is really high bank, tight, meandering, forested river for like 10 miles. And then you get to this ramp and it opens up. It becomes this sort of lowland, black ash swamp, really, you know, high grassy bank type thing. Um, it just really, it, the river changes character in a big way and it goes from rock to kind of gravel sand, even a little bit like mud bank. Um, and it, at, at that time, it was, it was strange that the day went from this like kind of crisp but sunny day uh, to as soon as we got down to this spot, uh, you know, clouds moved in and the wind was just you know, snapping and gusting and, and, and kind of swirling around. It was weird. And as a musky guide, that can kind of turn you on a little bit. You're like, okay, there's, there's some <laughs> weather blowing in here. Like when the weather gets nasty, the fishing gets good. That that's not just, that's not a rule, but like, you know, <laughs> I've had enough success under those conditions where it's like, all right, Steve, we got the water we want. We got some weird stuff happening here. It's getting kind of spooky out. Like, let's do it. Let's make it happen. And Steve just kind of shrugs. He's on board. All right, let's do it. 
And so we're, we're fishing it. We get down around these couple of bends and you know, the wind is whipping the grass around and all of a sudden we, we can start to hear this, this sound on the wind. We can't tell where it's coming from, but it's kind of this like this moaning kind of whining moan. Uh, but it, it was, you know, strange, but you know, we're, we're both very focused on this water where we know the fish is going to happen. It's going to happen right here. And, but you know, as we move down river, it's getting a little louder and a little louder and the wind is still kind of pushing the grass around. And, and it, you know, when it gets windy sound kind of bounces, you can have a hard time tracking where a sound is coming from. Yes. We, we Especially have, like on water. Yeah. We, we just had no idea where this, where this sound was coming from. And as we get, we got a little closer you know, it's getting louder and we can tell that it's some kind of canine. And so we were thinking like, okay, coyote, or like we have wolves up here, you know, is, is it some kind of wolf thing? Or, um, and the idea popped into my head, well, this, this might just be a, this might just be somebody's dog who got it, <laughs> it is just, you know, farting around on the river or, but it, it sounded like there was some distress there. Um, so th there's no trapping, uh, allowed on the Namakagan, but, um, you know, I, people do it policy and enforcement, two very different things, but, um, anyway, so I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking, okay, now, you know, gosh, someone's dog has gotten its leg caught in a muskrat trap or beaver trap or something. And so I, you know, I mentioned to Steve, like, you know, we gotta be ready to come around the corner here and see something unpleasant. Um, but we, you know, we're getting closer and closer. And now it sounds like this thing is kind of right on top of us, but we still can't see. And I'm looking in the grass, you know, standing up and looking around and we come around this little point and there is a black lab, maybe 12 feet away from me. Big black lab, like, like, a, like a 75 pound dog. As soon as this dog saw us, it, it stopped its moaning sort of you know, it was, it was like this shudder almost. Um, it stopped and just looked right at us and no tail wagging, no nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. It's its eyes, it, it was, so it was partway in the water is the thing. Its front legs were, had, had, were like slid down the bank and were in the water. And its eyes were all goopy and it was just covered in mud and, you know, mm -hmm. just not, not looking very good. Uh, not looking healthy and also looking kind of scary um yeah oh yeah that's never know, what i'm thinking yeah you never know what like a distressed animal is going to do even if it is a household pet um so this whole thing was just getting weird um but it had a collar on and so okay this dog belongs to somebody um and with its front paws in the water i thought for sure like okay it's in a trap and so i, I pulled the boat in and um, I, I got out of the, got out of the boat and thought, okay, is this dog like going to come, you know, snap at me or, or attack me or whatever. But so I, the, the best I could do, the best I had, you know, short of like my musky net was a boat <laughs> owl. <laughs> so, so, and the dog hadn't moved at all. So I just like grabbed my boat towel and kind of, you know, booped the dog a little bit just to see if it wanted to bite me or bite something and it did not even move like just kept looking right at me and and just kind of shaking a little bit so i thought okay 
and the water temp was 39 degrees and this dog is halfway in the water, halfway in the water. Um, so it's like all right this is you know I kind of inched my way closer a little bit this dog is distressed we got a problem here and I started feeling down its leg into the water to you know see if it was stuck in a trap it wasn't it was it was really strange because why would that dog choose to stay in this freezing cold water if it could get itself out but anyway I, I was able to lift its legs out of the muck and kind of push it up onto the onto the grass because it, it, it couldn't move on its own um, and I, I looked at the collar and there were no tags on it but there were a couple little like plaques and uh, discovered the dog's name was Bugsy <laughs> which it's a great name for a dog <laughs> fantastic name for a dog and kind of disarming too like yeah you know like this strange dog in the grass like was named shredder or something <laughs> or like viper yeah and you're like, like oh like, okay no but this is just bugsy yeah uh, oh, hi bugsy exactly bugsy you look <laughs> like you're in rough shape let's get you out of here uh so there, there were two phone numbers on bugsy's collar and I, you know i read them off to steve who's still in the boat and he uh he dialed them and didn't get answers on either but left you know left a message and so i i pull out my phone and uh, I'm on the phone to the, the Washburn County Sheriff's Department just to you know tell them what's going on out here and you know could have called the National Park Service tip line but it was almost five o'clock and in November five o'clock means dark up here oh yeah so it you know yeah. it's it's gonna be cold and it's gonna be just pretty hateful outside and it's gonna get dark fast um, as I'm on the phone with uh, with the sheriff's deputy Steve gets a call back from this number um, and this woman said, yeah, Bugsy's our dog. Um, we live about a mile down from here. No, there are no houses on the river, but you know, they live, you know, just off, uh, on a side road and we'll meet you back up at the landing. We'll, we'll come get them. Um, and so I, I, Bugsy was not going to move under his own power. So I scooped up big old Bugsy and he's all muddy and wet and just oh, the, the amount of dog hair that was in my boat after this was just obscene but um anyway <laughs> black lab was it a black lab right black lab yeah on, on a white boat not not that like the looks matter but it just stood out so much you could see all of it it, it was and the smell too like labs when they get oh, wet my uncle has labs too up in the north woods and i don't know why but they just all of his labs always just smell so stinky they, they have a certain odor about smell. it for sure yeah and and bugsy was no exception to that um so anyway just, <laughs> just dumped bugsy in the boat and started rowing as hard as i could to get back up to the landing and by now this like kind of swirling gusting wind had turned into just like a straight hammering wind at the back of the boat so <laughs> bugsy in the boat and i'm just yanking on the oars to get all the way back up here and water was really low so i, I you know i made it back within about 200 yards of of the boat ramp and then it got too shallow to row so i had to get out and, and drag the boat <laughs> and um and Steve is just sitting in the boat or is Steve, he kind of like, uh... Steve, Steve is, Steve's offering, you know, to, to help if he can, but what, what is he going to do at that point? You know, it's me slogging the boat back up to the ramp. And by this point, the other boat that was behind us has shown up and they're taken out. And 
<laughs> and the these owners have pulled up. And so it's just this kind of this big meeting going on at the ramp here. And I'm, I'm sure the, the other boat was like, what the hell is going on here? But got Bugsy back up to the ramp and got him to, uh, got him to, to his people. Uh, this all happened on a Friday. Turns out Bugsy had gone missing on Sunday night. Bugsy, oh was, Bugsy was out for five nights. He had the itch to get out. Well, <laughs> apparently he, he had chased something, you know, he, he took off and I don't know if he was unable to find his way back or chose not to go back, but he'd been out for five nights, cold nights. I mean, it, it was getting down in the teens. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure he hadn't eaten anything or at least anything good. And then at the very end, his body just stiffened and he just couldn't do anything anymore. He's like, well, I have to imagine as far as I could go. Yeah. I mean, he, he might've like gone down to the river to try to get a drink of water and was just too weak to get himself out. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't guess how Bugsy got in the pickle that he was in, but I don't we can't think talk, we, we I don't can't think talk to Bugsy okay. about it. You know, no, it turns out we cannot talk to Bugsy about it. Um, but there's the, the, the couple, the couple who, who were, you know, Bugsy's owners were so grateful to see him. And, you know, I, I picked him up out of the boat cause he still wasn't walking at this point. Um, and, and got him in the car and, uh, and they thanked me and gave me a hug and, and took off. And, um, I, I called them uh, a couple of weeks later just to check in on Bugsy. It, they had, I didn't write their number down, but they, I'm normally not good at remembering phone numbers just in my head, but they had a super memorable phone number. Uh, and so I called them back to see, you know, what's the Bugsy report? How's he doing? Um, and no answer, but, uh, you know, a few days later, uh, they called me back and uh, they said that, that they had put Bugsy down that what? Uh, well Bugsy was 14 years old oh was it it might have been his like last swan song maybe that's what he was trying to do it was just it might have been Bugsy's final hurrah um and, and you know who knows if Bugsy could see or how disoriented he was or whatever but um I I take a I take a little solace in a couple of things. One, that Bugsy didn't die cold, shaking and alone on a riverbank in the dark. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was able to, to, you know, have a couple of days of comfort at his home, you know, with his people. And then um, they, they did what they had to do for Bugsy. But also uh, at age 14, Bugsy had uh, had fathered a litter of black lab puppies just that spring and the, the the couple has two of Bugsy's puppies um so the, the spirit of Bugsy lives on oh I love where do you know so do you get to see these puppies ever uh I've I've still got their phone number of of this this couple and they, they gave me the un <laughs> I just stop by the house anytime I'm down on that part of the river so I think I would like to swing by and and you know give those pups a a good scratch behind the ears and uh, and see see the Bugsy legacy. What I love about fishing is just like just the fishing stories that come out of it. It's not normally always about fishing. It was a really good thing, and also um, that spot where we found Bugsy is a great musky spot. To this point, it had never been given a name. Now it's called Bugsy. 
Oh, that is so cool. If um, people are wanting to learn a little bit more about, um, about you and Hayward Fly Fishing Company, what's the best way of them um, keeping in touch? Uh, well, it seems the best way these days is probably on Instagram. Um, our Instagram, my Instagram uh, is Hayward Fly Fishing Co., all one word. And you can check us out there and see what's going on. Um, the, the website haywardflyfishingcompany.com is, uh, a little dated. Uh, you know, it's part of the, part of the transition to new ownership is kind of revamping that and getting some more updated information on there. But, um, you know, stay tuned for that kind of becoming a, a more reliable resource, but, uh, we're, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. So, um, and still taking some bookings. Yeah. Yep. Schedule's filling up, uh, filling up for 2022, but we've still got some openings. So, um, happy to, happy to get out. People can give us a call. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stu, for sharing your stories. And like I said, I'm looking forward to this summer and making my way back up there and, um, visiting you guys because your shop is amazing, special, and you guys have a special place up there. Yeah, we sure do. I'm glad you recognize that. And, uh, Wisconsin will always welcome you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just make sure I just get my story straight about Hayward sucks. You know, like I got to make sure I'm getting right, the right, right. sucks yeah. and blows stories yeah. straight. <laughs> Hayward, does not, Hayward does not blow. Spoon <laughs> it just sucks. Spooner blows. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.